Section 23 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, General Estimate, Religious Philosophy, Part 2. 3. The political services rendered by our divines should not be overlooked in any enumeration of their merits. None of them took an active part in political affairs. They were far less prominent in public life than many of the Puritan divines on the one side, or the prelatists on the other. Yet the quiet force of their well-considered convictions, and the eclectic spirit which led them to recognize what was due to the several elements of the civil constitution, no less than to the diverse forms of religious life and opinion in England, their conciliatory and enlarged comprehensiveness, in short, in the political no less than in the ecclesiastical complications of the country, exercised a powerful influence on the national mind, and contributed in no small degree to the triumph and settlement of constitutional principles at the revolution of 1688. It is striking, indeed, to what extent their enlightened liberality prevailed in all directions, working together as they did without any formal organization, merely under the impulse of their own high thoughtfulness and unselfish desire to promote the interests of truth and the rights of all as citizens. The subversive paradoxes of Hobbes, the nobler but not less visionary model of the Republican Party headed by Milton, the servile royalism and passive obedience of the extreme high church party, represented by such men as Thorndike and the non-jurors, made more noise and excited more prominent political agitation for a time, but they passed away. It was the glory of the latitudinarian divines here, as in other respects, to oppose the force of their calm and thoughtful reasonableness to all such extremes, and to set before the country an idea of the Constitution which was neither absolutist nor republican, which rested neither on material force nor unreasoning superstition, but was equally removed from the pretense of theocratic despotism and the dreams of social democracy. Such an ideal was provided in the broad and deeply reasoned premises laid down by members of the latitudinarian type. The ground which they took up seems to have approached most nearly to that shortly afterwards adopted by the moderate and philosophical section of the early Whig party. Their axioms of polity tended closely to that mixed or constitutional form in accordance with which the relations between sovereign and people have been since more practically defined through the influence of events rather than the progress of legislation. Loyalists at heart, their regalism was leavened by liberal philosophy. Almost all the influential divines of the Revolution, as we have already said, were trained in the Cambridge School, and carried its principles, if no longer in their purely ideal form, into the regulation of their public conduct. It was easy, of course, for disappointed factions then, as it is easy for their successors in our own day, to attribute the conciliatory and enlightened policy of men like Tillotson or Patrick to ignoble motives of self-interest. But we agree with the writer from whom we have already quoted that this policy, quote, was the result of long and deep conviction, upheld amid no little peril. It was consistent in them to welcome a policy which, regulating at once the prerogative of the crown and the immunities of the subject, and reconciling in perpetuity civil freedom with regal privilege, could enlist the spontaneous sympathies and energies of the nation in support of public order and the supremacy of the legislature. Close quote. Footnote. Reverend Alexander Taylor, Michelle Fellow of Queen's College, Oxford, whose criticism of the Cambridge School in the preface to his edition of Patrick's works is, as we formerly said, admirable so far as it goes. 
there is no other modern criticism indeed known to us deserving of attention End of footnote. two we could have wished to close here but impartial criticism demands from us some notice of the defects as well as the merits of our theologians it is the less possible to pass them by that they are so obvious they lie more on the outside and are visible to many who have no capacity of appreciating their excellences all can see their faults of manner style and method but they were also greatly deficient in critical penetration and range deep-thoughted and comprehensive as they were we have already spoken of the defects of the cambridge divines as writers in this respect there is a great difference betwixt them yet they are one and all behind many of their contemporaries hobbes puts them all to shame as a writer beside hales and chillingworth in our first volume they fail greatly in clearness and force of style in directness readiness and that felicitous mastery of intellect which so grasps the materials of an argument as to sift from it in the very act what is superfluous and inapplicable and bring the whole to an effective point hales and chillingworth it is true carry less weight of thought their minds if more dexterous are more concentrated and purchase something of their comparative ease of movement from the lighter burden which they carry but they were also by nature more quick-witted and perspicacious if no less ardent students they had brought the product of their studies more into the light of day and tested them in intercourse with men of common intellectual shrewdness and acute literary faculty it was the misfortune of the cambridge men to breathe almost uniformly an academic and theological atmosphere not merely to be in the main recluse students for all students must be recluse so far but seldom to emerge into the world of everyday thought and action thus all their writings not only smell of the academic lamp but have the operosity and cumbrousness of the school rather than the finish of the thinker who has been trained but has forgot his training in the consciousness of accomplishment and power which it has left behind they carry their academic trappings with them whatever they do they crowd their books with specimens of all the intellectual furniture which they have gathered in the course of their studies it was an age of painful verbosity and pedantry save in the very best writers the lengthiness and tedium of the pulpit infected more or less all forms of composition cudworth and moore are not only not above their contemporaries in this respect but they have their own vices of style and grafted upon the common pedantry of the time their lack of method is a still more serious fault the external disfigurement and formlessness of their writings might be excused if there were order within but their thought is sometimes unorganized as well as their style it is insufficiently laid out and disentangled in its details the reader has to bring its parts together and reconstitute it as he best can we refer especially to moore whose writings are as voluminous as those of all the others together in him especially a deficient method and lack of critical penetration are apparent but cudworth's great work also with all its merits is greatly wanting in organization rich massive and powerful as the theological mind of the seventeenth century was it was with rare exceptions wholly uncritical it accumulated knowledge with a marvellous power and profusion of learning but it failed in discriminating its sources or estimating with any degree of accuracy its true proportions and value the apparently unhesitating acceptance of the apostles creed as the composition of the twelve apostles even by so inquisitive an intellect as chillingworth not to speak of jeremy taylor is a conspicuous instance of this uncritical habit and failure to sift the grounds of their knowledge it is well to point out this but it is also well to remember how slow the progress of criticism is 
in reference to theological ideas and matters of church history. Coleridge has made far too much of it after his want. While he shows himself in the very notes in which he takes Taylor to task on this point, that his own mind had by no means cleared itself from unhistorical preconceptions as to the origin and nature of Christianity. Footnote. All differences in the Christian church might be tolerated, according to Coleridge, but such a difference as is represented by Trinitarianism and Socinianism, or Humanitarianism. But is there any historical student nowadays who would deny that the primitive Jewish church contained those who could be pronounced humanitarians from a modern point of view? Quote, Contraries cannot be true. The Christ cannot be both mere man and incarnate God. But the question, according to Coleridge himself, is not one for definition or conceptual logic at all. And why, therefore, should there be such an intolerable inconsistency betwixt a higher and a lower view of that which in itself is undefinable? Nothing regarding the origin of Christianity is probably more certain than that the Nicene definitions of the person of Christ would have been utterly unintelligible and unacceptable to the primitive Jewish Christian. End of footnote. The Cambridge divines show their lack of critical and historical judgment in three important particulars. A. Their confusion of Platonism and Neoplatonism. B. Their speculative fancifulness. And C. Their misappreciation of evidence. A. The confusion between Platonism and Neoplatonism underlies their whole writings. They are, as Coleridge says, Plotonists rather than Platonists. The theosophic reveries of the Alexandrian school fitted more aptly their own supersensual imaginations, and so they pass from the original to the later Platonic writings with the most indiscriminating indifference. They betray no suspicion of the enormous interval of thought betwixt Plato and Plotinus, still less of any growth or development of thought in Plato himself. What are now supposed to be his later dialogues chiefly interest them, the Theotetus, Sophistes, Parmenides, above all the Timaeus. The second book of the Immutable Morality is nearly half composed of quotations from the Theotetus, and the lengthened discussion in the fourth chapter of the Intellectual System on the Platonic Trinity rests in the main on the Timaeus and the Neoplatonic writers. Of the latter, Plotinus, 203-262 A.D., is the chief favorite, but Proclus, 412-485, and Hierocles, 450, are also abundantly quoted. Themistius, died 390, and two writers of the later Neoplatonic school, Damasius and his disciple Simplicius, along with the Trismegistic writings, frequently reappear in their pages. Footnote. Both belong to the 6th century and took refuge at the court of the Persian monarch Khosroes when Justinian closed the schools of heathen philosophy. End of footnote. Their minds were drenched with the speculations of the Alexandrian school in all its forms. Like the members of this school, they credited Plato with a sort of semi-inspiration, and believed, as we have more than once seen, that he derived his wisdom from Moses. The extraordinary assumption of both Moore and Cudworth, that all divine philosophy found in heathen writings is to be traced definitely to the Hebrews, that the original atomic doctrine and all the teachings of Pythagoras and of Plato have come from a Jewish fountainhead, may be considered the climax of their uncriticalness. Moore is absolutely possessed with this notion, and recurs to it over and over again as the explanation of all the anticipations of Christian truth which appear to meet him everywhere in the Platonic and Neoplatonic writings. It is needless to indicate how different in many respects is the spirit of our theologians from the genuine Platonic spirit, 
the one clear, bright, poetic, dramatic, scientific rather than mystical, the other vague, serious, and exclusively theological. The mysticism of Plato is a mysticism half poetic and half philosophic, touched with the brilliant and changing hues of a mythology half real, half ideal. The mysticism of Moore and Smith is purely spiritual and theosophic, an obscure region bounded by supersensual realities, and the creature not of fancy and imagination, but of a passionate and fertile faith. The vivacity, inquisitiveness, common sense, and dialectical badinage of the Platonic Socrates have nothing in common with the profound but somber and unwieldy thoughtfulness of the Cambridge divines. The Platonism which dominated their thoughts and colored their theology, and impressed more or less all their speculations, was not the Platonism of Plato. They never thought of distinguishing the varied elements of his philosophy in themselves or in relation to Neoplatonic speculations. It is no easy task even for modern criticism to discriminate the growth of the Platonic doctrine, or to make out clearly whether it has any growth or consistent development at all. But the very idea of such a development had not even dawned upon our divines. The suspicion that Plotinus and Proclus, while building upon the Platonic basis, may have had little or none of the spirit of the master builder, never disturbed them. Platonism was to them a vast mass of transcendental thought, dating from Pythagoras and even Moses, and stretching downwards through Alexandrian and medieval Jewish schools. And it was this Platonism of tradition, of the successive spiritualistic schools which had contended for a supersensual philosophy, and peopled the world of faith with many fantastic reveries, which ruled their spirits and inspired their philosophic ambition. In this sense alone can they be called Platonists. It is to be remembered that the age of historical criticism was yet unborn. Tradition, philosophic, patristic, scientific, lay like an incubus upon the intelligence of the seventeenth century. Even contemporary philosophies were imperfectly understood and criticized. How much more ancient systems! Descartes and Hobbes were combated zealously, but not analyzed or critically explained, or fully comprehended in the totality of their principles and the relation which they bore to one another. How then could this be expected in the case of Pythagoras, or Plato, or Plotinus? Creeds and theologies passed without examination. Supposed heresies were vigorously refuted, but they were not challenged and asked to give an account of themselves. No one inquired, or at least inquired with any critical capacity of getting a true answer, as to the growth of the Apostles' Creed, or the Athanasian Creed. Why should not Pythagoras have learned his wisdom from the Jews, and all that was good in Greek thought have come from the great Hebrew seer? We have had speculations in our own day as to the analogies betwixt the Messiah and the Hellenic Apollo. No amount of mere learning can impart the faculty of criticism and of comparative historical induction. Especially where religious enthusiasms come into play, knowledge without insight and largeness of thought seems sometimes only to lead further astray. And uncritical tradition, in many forms, still lies with such a weight on all Christian churches that we may easily understand, while we regret, the inability of the Cambridge Platonists to disentangle the folds of traditionary theosophy which enveloped all their thought. b. Their speculative fancifulness was largely due to the same habits of mind. They had no adequate criteria of knowledge. They failed in distinguishing the subjective and objective in their respective elements, what was due to the conditions of the problem they discussed, and what came from their own preconception, a failure more or less of all speculation yet it was more than usually conspicuous in our philosophers. Coleridge has said of them, quote, 
what they all wanted was a pre-inquisition into the mind as part organ part constituent of all knowledge an examination of the scales weights and measures abstracted from the objects to be weighed or measured by them Close quote. this expresses very much the same defect only we have hardly a right to expect from them such a criticism of the sources of knowledge as coleridge desiderates we have no warrant to look as he implies for a kant among them or in the century to which they belong such anticipations of philosophical history are unreasonable the cambridge philosophers however fell below the speculative method of their own age they were the victims of fantastic conceptions no less than of futile traditions from which their own reasonable culture and the new spirit of inquiry which surrounded them should have delivered them students of descartes they failed to learn the chief lesson of his philosophy the necessity of some clear principle or ground of certitude on which to base all their thought some touchstone by which to test it advocates of reason they yet never asked themselves plainly what is reason and how rational and irrational ideas are to be distinguished not merely in the sphere of religion but of speculation their rationalism was adequate to sift the notional dogmatism of the popular religion and the vagaries of quakerism and other enthusiasms but it failed to reach the sources of their own thought or to clear their own speculative vision hence all their dreams of plastic and vital natures of the pre-existence and hierarchies of souls and generally the neoplatonic fantasies with which they filled their minds without any suspicion of their irrational incoherence and absurdity c we have already more than once adverted to their misappreciation of evidence as to the supernatural or spiritual world their studies had furnished them with no adequate criterion of evidence scientific or historical their ignorance of natural causes they shared with their generation their credulity as to ghosts and apparitions was the inheritance of generations of credulity it was almost a part of the common faith of the church they are excusable here therefore as in other points it is no reproach to cudworth and moore that they believed in ghosts there were but few in the seventeenth century who ventured to disbelieve in them but it may be fairly urged against them that they so little appreciated either the nature of evidence on the one hand or the true character of the supernatural on the other hand as to suppose that such stories of apparitions could possibly convince intelligent minds of the existence of spirits in opposition to the materialism which they saw rising around them to place a good cause on a false issue is not only a peril to the cause but an impediment to the progress of thought and moore and glanville in this respect not only did not represent the rationality of their age but were doing what they could to retard it they have greatly suffered in consequence more than they deserved these spiritualistic follies have clung to their name and reputation when their true enlightenment and the rational elevation and radiant warmth of their comprehensive christianity has been forgotten moore's credulity vast as it was and the cloudy unsubstantiality of many of his speculations never obscured the clearness of his moral vision nor the essential rationality of his theological principles he and all his school were still ready to test every form of spiritual truth by the light of the higher truths in man the divine sagacity or image of the royal and divine logos which they might mistake and misinterpret but which they never thought of superseding or displacing it cannot be denied that the cambridge platonists failed in much that they attempted they essayed anew in a distracted and unbelieving age to verify the divine not merely to witness it to man's reason and conscience but to construe it into a philosophy and rear a science of religion they failed partly by reason of their own weakness and errors 
but especially because the time was not yet ripe for the development of an adequate spiritual philosophy. Such a philosophy can never be based merely, or even mainly, on the private excogitations of thinkers, however great. It can never be a product of mere intuition or mere logic, however exalted, nor yet can it be a mere revival of any past phase of thought, however noble and significant. Platonism, even in its highest form, is but a splendid speculation, higher than any single effort of thought will probably ever reach again, but we cannot build a shelter for Catholic thought out of the most splendid fragment of speculation. Such a stately dome can only rise gradually on a comprehensive basis of historic criticism, which shall take in not merely this or that phase of speculation, but the whole growth of religious experience of which we have become the heirs. To this extent, the positive or scientific method must be universally adopted, only enlarged to the area of a genuinely comprehensive induction. A true religious philosophy can only be built up slowly by the process which verifies while it accumulates and tests every addition to the fabric of discovery before it ventures to lay it to the pile. The religious experience of mankind through all the ages of historic and even prehistoric growth is as much a reality as any other phase of his experience, a good deal more a reality than most others. Religion has been and remains the most powerful factor of human history. Amidst all its changes it has been this and is likely to continue to be so. The idea that human progress shall ever transcend religion or lay it aside is the wildest dream that ever entered into the uncultured and semi-savage heart that still lurks in the bosom of modern civilization. There it is, and has been always in the world, moving in some form or other its highest minds to their highest significance. There is no science, however exclusive, can refuse to recognize such facts, by the very right which it itself has to exist, and inquire into its own series of facts. But theologians and Christian philosophers must come to acknowledge that religious facts are not, any more than other facts, of private interpretation. They are individual, it is true, and in a certain sense cannot be investigated too closely as elements of individual experience. But in order to be fully and comprehensively understood, they must also be regarded as parts of the common experience of humanity through all its stages of growth. They must be studied not only in their individualistic, but in their generalized form, as they appear in their gradual and complete development in history, before we can interpret them right, and form even approximate theory of their true value. We must have, in short, some adequate criticism of religious ideas in all their mysterious growth, dependency, and involvement before we can venture to construct any adequate theory or philosophy of religion. All true thought is merely fact idealized. All right theory is merely experience generalized. No thought that is worth anything can ever rise above an historic basis. No more than science can transcend nature can religious thought transcend history. It may illuminate history, but it must first of all grow out of it, and a philosophy of religion, before it aims at settling for us the great problems which it involves, must be content to drudge for long yet in reading the varied records of religious experience which modern historical criticism has only begun to unfold and arrange. Light, therefore, is not to be sought in any sudden illumination, nor progress in any pet theories of modern, any more than of ancient, thinkers but only in patient study and faithful generalization. The vast volume of religious experience will slowly unfold its characters to inductive and patient thinkers, as other volumes of experience have done. And as this volume is steadily read, its pages compared and their facts coordinated and explained, the divine meaning will become clearer. 
a religious philosophy will at least become possible when it is sought in this way, not in any favorite speculation of this or that thinker, however great, but in the comprehensive interpretation of the religious consciousness working through all history and gathering light and force as it works onward. End of chapter 7, part 2. End of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock.